This is hell. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell, and talk about the evil of money incentivizing the desire of greed at all costs, no matter who it harms. There's this thing you may have heard of called cryptocurrency that combines the promise of a crypt, an underground vault beneath a church for burying the dead, with currency, which, like the Bible says, is the root of all evil, which contradicts the prosperity gospel of hucksters like Joel Osteen. As it says in Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Not really sure what all of that means, but it's in the Bible. And there's no real need to worry, right? I mean, crypto's in our rearview mirror. And if we believe the sage advice of our rearview mirror, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear, maybe crypto is not as bad as it once was. Now that it's finally reined in by regulators with a media that has finally turned its back and what it made popular while turning its profiteers into celebrities, well, maybe the whole nightmare is over. But what if it isn't? What if big money, I mean really, really big money, like huge money, has decided that it's time to get in on crypto while the market is teetering? And what if that appearance by business writer Michael Lewis, author of The Big Short and the highly problematic The Blind Side on 60 Minutes last weekend, when they when he discussed his new book on Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX fraud fame, was the mainstream media priming the pump for the resurgence of crypto in a world that does not need it? In a few minutes, we will have the return of Hadass Tir, who will be on to discuss her Jacobin Magazine article, The Rot of the Crypto Economy Goes Deeper Than Sam Bankman-Fried. The once-celebrated crypto mogul is now sitting in a Brooklyn jail cell, awaiting trial for several counts of fraud and money laundering. But the scammy Silicon Valley capitalism he represents isn't going anywhere. Hadass is an activist and author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist economics, and a regular contributor to Jackman. This is Hadass's fourth appearance on the show. Her most recent appearance was just a little over a year ago when we had her on to talk about her in these times article a left answer to inflation she was also on the show back in march 2022 to discuss her dollars and cents article cryptocurrency will not liberate us on the day after the 2020 presidential election hadas was on to talk about her book a people's guide to capitalism because what better day to talk about marxism than the day after a u.s election you can hear all of those interviews for free by going to thisishell.com and searching on her name, Tier. that's T-H-I-E-R at thisishell.com. Follow Hadas on Twitter at Hadas Tier. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how has your week gone so far? So far, so good. Rounding out, I think it's week, week six of the semester over at Loyola, and uh, we have entered the progressive era. Oh, really? Yeah. How's that going? Yeah, well... 
helping them disentangle what the term means and meant over time, right? Yeah, that's how, really difficult to do. I, I try to describe liberalism. Get, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then other than that, got a really good friend coming in from L.A. tonight, staying through the weekend, so it's going to be a good time. That does sound like a lot of yeah, fun. I might drag her over here even. I don't know. Really? Yeah. Oh, that'd be fun. Carrie seems like her cup of tea. I don't know. Uh, please tell me if you're heading this way. Will do. Uh, look, like I, I know my problems are minuscule to what others experience every day, but my week has not been so great. I mentioned that for my birthday, I got a wisdom tooth extracted, and I've been very worried that I will get what is known as dry socket, which sounds disgusting. It's a very painful condition that can happen after you have a tooth pulled. It's caused by a blood clot that covers the wound becoming dislodged or when the clot is fully not fully formed. Uh, while it can be treated with pain relievers and lasts about a week, I am told by friends who have had it that it is one of the most painful ailments they have ever gone through in their life. To make matters worse, the post-extraction instructions my dentist gave me includes this, Will. This is the first instruction they gave give me. For two days, don't smoke for the next two weeks. Hmm. <laughs> so, hmm. so I posted an image of those confusing instructions on social media, and you can see the responses listeners offered at the <laughs> This Is Hell Facebook page, or Welcome to the Hellhole group page, my own F-book page, as well as on Twitter. Here's a small sampling of what listeners are saying. On Twitter, Clobberchop advises that I smoke through my nose, quote, Dentists have no jurisdiction over the nose. <laughs> I like that. You can fit a J in each nostril. <laughs> exactly. Uh, meanwhile, Immortal Tortle says, you can smoke in 24 hours, just not for two weeks. You're going to have to take a break on day 13. Now that's some confusing math. So SLS replies, do your best to fit a fortnight of not smoking into the day. Maybe use a Tesseract. <laughs> <laughs> Bradley R. reminds me, 24 hours of uh, not smoking feels like two weeks these days because this is hell. But that's not all the misery I got for my birthday this year. The person who would be my mother-in-law if my girly and I got married, and earlier this week I mentioned how my use of that term girly has been vindicated by an article in the New York Times, if you trust the New York Times. My would-be mother-in-law, who refers to herself as my mother outlaw, had a surgery scheduled on my birthday. And there were complications, so after going home, she had to return to the hospital for observation. Then also on my birthday, her ex-husband, uh, they've been divorced for like 25 years, uh, ostensibly my father-in-law, or outlaw would be the case, had to be rushed to the emergency room for chest pains. Again, on my birthday. Thankfully, they're both back home and recovering. However, I'm home alone as my non-wife had to go help with her dad's recuperation to make matters even worse. This Saturday is our anniversary, which means it's unlikely we will be able to celebrate as her dad and stepmom live 150 miles away. So not only was my birthday not as fun as I had hoped, but celebrating our anniversary is now also in jeopardy. Again, my problems are small, small compared to what others are going through right now. But from the pain caused by the extraction to my worrying and paranoia about the pain getting much worse to my concerns over the health of two wonderful people who I love very much and the anxiety I have for the love of my life's anxiety about her parents, so far, my week has really, 
really sucked. More important than my problems, which amount to little compared to what others are going through. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is how are Chinese commies sneaking into your community? (laughs) So Hadass knows. This is about uh, in northern Michigan, northwestern Michigan, there is a community that was supposed to be getting an electric battery plant. Uh, They have now risen up against that electric battery plant because they say it is run by the Chinese government and that the Chinese are going to do things like, you know, putting nuclear missiles in silos on the land in order to attack the United States from within. Just yeah. some crafty commies. <laughs> Very crafty. If they could only be that crafty all the time, we doing would have, a Doing have... a capitalism and putting in <laughs> nukes somehow. I can't wait. It's going to be good for jobs. Michigan needs work. Coming up, not only will we be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell, but we'll also give you the bad news that crypto is definitely not dead yet. We'll tell you what is happening during this week's bonus Patreon podcast, which will be posted on Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we'll tell you what's happening on next week's show live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. Remember when it seemed like cryptocurrency was the best investment since, well, ever? And investor after investor were allegedly making millions and millions of dollars by doing little to nothing? Back then, the media, as well as leading government officials, were absolutely in love with the geniuses behind the money-making scheme. It turns out, in reality, they may have been doing nothing more than committing fraud. And they apparently got the press and elected members of both political parties to fall for their scam here to get us caught up on the current state of crypto and to warn us that crypto is not dead yet hadas here is on to discuss her jacobin magazine article the rot of the crypto economy goes deeper than sam bankman freed you can follow hadas on twitter at hadas here hadas welcome back to the show thank you so much glad to be here how are you feeling uh, I'm feeling okay. I'm not 100%, but better than earlier this week. Oh, that's so thank you. Yeah, it's, you know? uh, it's, there's a cold going around everywhere. You're in New York. I'm in Chicago. My brother's out in LA. Everybody's getting a cold right now. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep, right time of year. So you write that this time last year, Sam Bankman-Fried was celebrated as an awkward but brilliant wunderkind, a young billionaire crypto mogul who wanted to do good in the world. So his fame and supposed brilliance was based on being a billionaire without seemingly any consideration of how he made his billions, as if how someone makes their fortune doesn't even matter. The fact they made so, or he made so much money and others uh, deserves to be celebrated and it is assumed they must be brilliant. That's the way that the government and the media looks at it. That you're making money, it should be celebrated. What does it say to you about the media industry that promotes and thrives on celebrity when they assume fortune means brilliance? Why does the media celebrate billionaires without considering how that fortune was made? Yeah, absolutely. It's without question, you know, he is brilliant because he has a lot of money and now he's lost his money. Therefore, he's a fraud and, you know, all all manner of things. He's now the, gone from being the most popular to the least popular. And all that really determines it is how much money he had versus how much money he doesn't have now. Um, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the mainstream media is itself 
big business. You know, the 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 companies that run the media are run by billionaires, and they're all part of uh, promoting this whole idea that you know we live in some kind of meritocracy and the best rises to the top. And you know, this thirty-year-old kid who wears shorts and rumpled t-shirts uh, and has made billions of dollars in a short amount of time is the cream of the crop because he must be look at how much money he's made. So, you know, it's part of what, you know, shouldn't have been surprising to me, but was still felt shockingly insulting is that after he went down, you know, all of these mainstream media sources were poking at all of the ridiculous things and, you know, how much of a fraud he is and what led to this and so on with absolutely zero self-reflection about the fact that the same people who are writing this now, you know, months earlier were comparing him to, you know, JP Morgan and Warren Buffett and all the rest of it, uh, you know, deferring to him as this brilliant, you know, awkward, but brilliant nerd who, you know, knew about the, the, the innovation of the future and so on. Uh, and now, you know, without question, we're, they're talking about him in the 180 degree reverse uh, without any self-reflection. And they were so wrong about this, just like they were wrong leading up to 2008 when there were people like Ali Valshi going on Oprah just maybe just a few days before the collapse uh, in 2008 with the Great Recession and the collapse of the housing market. He was on there telling her and her audience, real estate is the greatest thing to invest in right now. It just keeps going up and up and (laughs) up and up. And now he is still within the media. People like Dean Baker had predicted this back in 2003. Yet the people who are making the mistakes they don't lose their job. And the people who got it right, they aren't getting the media access to, you know, have a better history, a better record on getting things right. Why do you think it is that the media doesn't hold their own people responsible and accountable for the mistakes they made? If I would make that kind of mistake, I would assume, you know, as a journalist, I would be fired. So why do you think that they don't hold these people accountable for being wrong and they don't raise the people up who were right? Well, there's there's no incentive for them to. There's no incentive in any direction because, you know, who is it that, um, you know, keeps these mainstream media companies going, right? It's ad revenue. It's money from other big businesses. Uh, they're not getting their money from, you know, soliciting contributions from individual listeners and so on. Um, you know, if you run a podcast, you're much more, um, you know, responsible and accountable to the people that listen to your show or else it'll stop listening to, to your show. Uh, when you have mainstream media companies that are, you know, fueled by ad revenue from big business, I mean, there's not a complete disconnect there. They have to still be you know, listened to by people in order for, for ad companies to want to invest there. Uh, but there isn't that kind of like obvious one-to-one correlation. So they're, they're, they're not really incentivized and they're part of, you know, the, the, the CEOs that run those media companies are themselves benefiting from 
the status quo and from promoting the status quo and from saying, you know, no bubble will ever burst. Anything that's going up, whether it's real estate or crypto, is sure to go up forever. You know, uh, they 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 benefit from uh, that bubble continuing to to inflate because they're making money off of it. So there's not really any uh, incentive for them to to be held accountable. You also point out that SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, hobnobbed in shorts and rumpled T-shirts with people like Bill Clinton and Giselle Bundchen. He was the second largest donor to the Democratic Party. Later, we found also the second or third largest donor to the Republican Party. And because of his role in bailing out other failing crypto ventures, he was compared in the financial presses to towering figures like J.P. Morgan in Warren Buffett. Should these people have known better, especially a former president, one of the world's leading banks and one of the United States wealthiest people? Was the scam that uh, that good? Or are these people that are held in high regard by the media, which repeatedly tells us these are great and smart human beings, really not that bright at all? Why don't <laughs> some of the allegedly most brilliant minds and experts on business why didn't they see this as a scam? I mean, there were certainly some people that saw it as, as, as a scam, you know? Um, I mean, there are, they're, they're not necessarily the people that were getting the most amount of attention, but there have been, you know, for years, crypto critics that have been talking about, you know, all of the things that we later have were exposed to be true about the fraudulent, you know, underpinnings of, of this whole economy. Um, and there were some even, you know, within mainstream media and discussions. Um, I, I can't remember if it's in this article or another article that I quote. Um, you know, there was Sam Bankman Fried appeared on the Bloomberg podcast, and Matt Levine interviewed him. And it was, you know, Sam Bankman Fried basically explain the way that crypto works and basically explained a Ponzi scheme. And Matt Levine was like, wow, that sounds like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> um, you know, so there were people who who said it here and there. Uh, but by and large, I think that the 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 thing about bubbles in our economy is that while they're going up, the people that are benefiting from that have no reason to slow it down. You know, the more that it gets pumped up, the more they're seeing dividends. And so there were a lot of people who had no reason to question it because it was just making them a lot of money. And at the end of the day, that's what they were happy with, you know? Um, so I, you know, I think that that kind of goes to not just what's wrong with, with crypto, but that's what's wrong with the way that our, you know, that capitalism and our financial system works is you were talking before about the um, about the the housing bubble before the two thousand eight crash. You know there were there were plenty of signs back then that we were about to that the bubble was going to burst, and yet the people that were promoting that bubble had absolutely no interest in taking a look at that, much less flagging it for anybody else. And the same is true about about crypto, which is even more you know, <laughs> ephemeral, uh, has, has really nothing behind it. Uh, but it was making a lot of people, a lot of money. So is a bubble economy, is that continued bubble and burst and bubble and burst? Do you think that is a threat to the sustainability of capitalism? Or do you think 
that's just capitalism. Well, I think it's both. Um, it, it, it is capitalism, and it has been uh, throughout the history of capitalism. But it is also what, what threatens its stability, for sure. And a lot of those, you know, booms and intense busts and, you know, bubbles bursting have, have been historically a big part of the bust of the boom-bust cycle. Um, you know, those have been moments where there have been radical upsurges and protests and mass strikes and all sorts of things like that. Um, it's not guaranteed that that's what the response will be, but it does create uh, a lot of instability in the system. And that that instability is uh, potentially part of what can or could you know, undermine capitalism. You mentioned that FTX was touted as the safest and easiest way to buy and sell crypto, with executives even falsely implying that customer funds were FDIC insured. So is the problem not necessarily Sam Bankman-Fried as an individual, but that there is simply no safe and easy way to buy and sell crypto? Is he the problem, or is it the system that regulators actually allow to operate? Well, it's certainly the system. However, um, again, this is somewhere where I would say it's both, right? Um, Sam Bankman-Fried's whole model is currently, you know, in the spotlight and is being exposed for being completely fraudulent, uh, and it's being exposed in the most dramatic possible way. I was just at his. Um, trial yesterday. There's an ongoing trial uh, here in Brooklyn for, for a few weeks, uh, and I went and checked it out yesterday. Excuse me. Still have a little bit of a cold, uh, cough. Um, but anyway, it's, it's really quite dramatic how the extent to which the, safe, the safest and easiest way to buy and sell crypto, quote-unquote, was literally the exact opposite of that. You know, FTX customer accounts were just literally used as a piggy bank. Um, there was no, there was no backstop at all for customer funds. They were just getting funneled directly into Alameda, his uh, hedge fund, and that money was going to, you know, fund all sorts of risky uh, ventures and so on. They used about $14 billion worth of customer funds. In the end, we're able to re re uh, replace a few billion of those, but still left a gap of $8 billion. Um, so it was literally the opposite of safe or easy um, to buy and sell crypto on his exchange. And that has been exposed as a complete lie. And I think it's important to say, you know, it's a, a very big. <laughs> A very big lie. I mean, we saw in the in the courtroom like they had multiple spreadsheets. They had an internal spreadsheet that showed the budget of the hedge fund, and then they were, you know, they knew they couldn't show this to their investors, so they made up, mocked up other, you know, false budgets basically um, to send those out. So it was a pretty spectacular lie as far as lies go. 
Uh, but it is also true that this entire space is completely unregulated. And that's really the point of cryptocurrency is to be an unregulated financial space. And the problem is, um, you know, well, there's a few problems. One is you actually need government regulation of finance, you know, as much as there are all sorts of problematic things with our financial system, there's all sorts of problematic things with our government and the relationship between government and finance. Absolutely. But the problem is not regulation. We actually need more regulation. And that was, you know, the big lesson of the 2008 crisis was actually that there's not enough regulation of our financial system. There's not enough regulation of our banks and so on and so forth. We need, we need more regulation because that's the only way to have accountability and any kind of transparency um, and so on. Cryptocurrency is deliberately, you know, was created for the sake of being outside of government, um, government oversight. It's deliberately meant to be anonymous and um, free of any oversight or regulation, free of having to pay taxes, all these kind of libertarian ideas. And um, to the extent that they succeeded in that, that just means you're in a completely wild west system where they can tell you whatever they want to tell you on an ad. It's the safest and easiest way to buy and sell crypto. But there is no auditors and you know financial regulators looking at what the auditors have written up or anything like that. Um, you know, there's very there, they had some auditing um, at FTX, although we found out in the trial that it was that it was also based on lies. But you know, there, there's there's so little of that going on, and um, you know, for for people to be conned into putting their money into that is is a huge problem. And FTX is really, um, you know, just uh, the the sharpest edge of the iceberg, or or whatever the metaphor is. Um, you know, these other um, crypto companies, some of them have already fallen. Um, you know, some of them have not yet, but are also under scrutiny right now. These other exchanges and so on, um, they're not necessarily in much better shape. Now, we should have learned the lesson from the uh, collapse in 2008, the bursting of the housing bubble, that things do need to, at some level, be regulated. But as you point out in your article, we didn't learn that lesson because subprime has now been replaced by non-prime or some other form of the exact same situation. So do you think that there's any chance that we are going to learn our lesson this time? Why didn't we learn the lesson the first time? And are we going to learn our lesson this time? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time, there was much more after 2008, there was increased uh, regulations and talk of regulations and so on. It just didn't last for very long. Capitalism and the media and in particular, have a very, you know, short uh, attention span or like mem short-term memory loss or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, at the moment where that hits a fan, then there is some self-reflection and some talk of regulation and some of it, you know, little bits of it maybe go through and so on. Um, and then as soon as people aren't paying attention anymore as soon as that moment you know has passed 
um, you know, politicians and, you know, the, the financial, uh, folks that are kind of pushing their purse strings are, you know, pushing in the, in the opposite direction again, to try to, uh, water down the regulations as much as possible. Um, you know, I think right now <clears throat> there is certainly an appetite to regulate cryptocurrency, uh, and you see that, like, the main regulatory agency, the SEC, has been going after crypto pretty aggressively over the last uh, few months, for sure. How far they get, you know, is is in question. Um, there's certainly some politicians that are also pushing right now um, to try to put through some kind of... Um, some kind of laws in Congress to help, uh, you know, make crypto more legitimate. Um, so a lot really depends on who's pushing and how hard and how much money is still to be made through cryptocurrency and therefore, you know, which politicians can be, uh, you know, bought off or, um, enticed to support the industry because they think that, you know, it's still going to continue make, to make money. But can crypto be legitimate? How dependent is the success of cryptocurrency on being an illegitimate uh, way in which to make money? Uh, how dependent is it on being a scam or even a fraud? Can it be a legitimate thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly at its heart, it is written into the code. Um, its purpose is to not be uh, an, an, an open, accountable, or regulated system in any way. It is meant to be an anonymous system um, which has some transparency because everything then appears on the blockchain. Uh, but you don't know, you know, who, who's paid what, you know, because it's, it's anonymous. So its intention is to, you know, its intention is to be in the shadows in exactly that way. Um, and the, the sort of like libertarian ethos that gave rise to cryptocurrency in the first place, very much saw as its goal, a way to like, that cryptocurrency would be a way to undermine government ultimately because it could exist, uh, you know, in the shadows in this way that it, they could create an alternative financial system with no oversight, with no taxes, with no democratic accountability, uh, essentially. And that, that was really the purpose of cryptocurrency. Um, you know, somebody like Sam Bankman fried and, and other folks, like him, I mean, he represented the the sort of like um, the, the cutting edge of trying to make it respectable, uh, ironically, because he was, you know, uh, ultimately the exact opposite of that. Um, but there, you know, there were some wings of the cryptocurrency community, uh, especially once crypto started making them a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, that they wanted to figure out how to kind of make peace with a system and not just have it be seen as this like libertarian rebellion on the outskirts of the system. Um, 
and to try to make it seem like a legitimate thing that could exist, you know, within a democratic society and so on and so forth. Um, but that's a, that's a challenging thing to do because, uh, the code as it's written, you know, the, the whole program of Bitcoin, um, is meant to be, uh, um, you know, anonymous and shadowy and, and all the rest of it. Um, and the only way to have, you know, things in place that, you know, where you have to, like, that are, that are anti money laundering, for instance, and things like that, um, is to have companies that, that like FTX that act as intermediaries, um, that essentially, you know, these exchanges or, or a company like, you know, Celsius that tried to act as a, uh, present itself as like a bank of, of cryptocurrency, um, you know, that you have these more centralized companies that are the exact opposite of like the cryptocurrency ethos, right? Which is supposed to be de decentralized. So you have these centralized companies that in theory are the, are the people that could make it more quote unquote legitimate by, you know, forcing customers to uh, put in their information about where this money is coming or going and so on. Um, but of course, those companies are, you know, not regulated, not under the purview of any uh, kind of democratic accountability, uh, and are, you know, trying to make as much money as possible. So there's not really much incentive for them, um, you know, to keep things legitimate and, uh, and safe. So do you think that Sam Bankman freed that cryptocurrency that is firm FTX? Do you think it betrayed libertarianism? It did. It was contradictory to what libertarianism wanted to be, especially in the situation with uh, it being centralized so much in just a few small cryptocurrencies and exchanges. Did it betray libertarianism or did it actually practice libertarianism, that this is what libertarianism is and libertarianism always leads to concentration of wealth? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a contradictory situation um, in the sense that, on the one hand, all of these companies that are highly centralized are a betrayal of libertarian principles. Um, however, there is no way for Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency to become an actual quote unquote currency. I mean, none none of these none of these currencies uh, quote unquote have ever ever functioned as as actual currencies. Um, the only way for them to do so would be to um, you know gain mainstream adoption. And there's no way for them to gain mainstream adoption while the only way to effectively use them is like these very complicated systems of like having your own wallet and mining your own um, cryptocurrency, which most people can't do at this point. Um, you know, all of the things that were kind of built into the original Bitcoin code are not possible for the vast, vast majority of people. And so in order for it to become 
anything like a currency or for it to become anything like a useful investment, it has to gain somewhat mainstream adoption. And the only way to gain mainstream adoption is through these kind of more centralized companies that act as, um, you know, intermediaries um, and so on. So I think that that's a built-in contradiction in, 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 the, in the thing. But then there's, you know, the other aspect of libertarianism, which I think is really important here, which is that it's, you know, it's one thing to be, to talk about decentralization and um, anonymity and all of these things, which are undermined by these centralized companies. Uh, but the other aspect of libertarianism is, and this very much runs through uh, all of the kind of cryptocurrency world, is that, you know, the free market is, you know, ultimately reigns supreme, right? That um, f what, what freedom means is financial freedom. You know, what, um, what liberty means is, you know, individualized uh, financial freedom to make as much money as possible. And that's, you know, ultimately, um, the, the, the end goal here. And so in that sense, you know, all of the things that, uh, Sam Bankman freed and FTX were doing, you know, we're, we're, we're very much in line with that, you know, with that aspect of libertarianism. Um, and the, the libertarian ethos has had absolutely no problem with the fact that cryptocurrency has become even more co uh, concentrated in terms of wealth uh, than our current economy, which is absurdly and disgustingly concentrated uh, as it is in, in the in the realm of cryptocurrency. It's you know times a hundred uh, in terms of concentration of wealth, and that uh, is is absolutely uh, not not a problem, and in fact an outgrowth of uh, the libertarian model. So, Hadas, do we know if anyone legally made money off of crypto, even if the laws were different in the past and didn't limit crypto? Is there any way someone could have benefited off of crypto legally without somehow committing or advancing a fraud? Because if you look it up online, you'll see uh, people who, you know, crypto sites will say are worth, you know, $200 million or made this uh, huge amount of money, billions of dollars in crypto. Do we know if that's based on fact or if that's just uh, public relations hype from crypto companies? Well, I mean, they, they have made, a lot of people have made a lot of money. Uh, it's not necessarily illegal. It's just that what determines the value of those cryptocurrencies is how much money people are willing to pay for it. Uh, and that is just, you know, ultimately part of this whole kind of bubble economy. I mean, Bitcoin right now, um, you know, despite huge uh, fall in the cryptocurrency, um, you know, economy for now over, you know, how long has it been? Almost a, almost a year. Um, 
you know, the price of a single Bitcoin is still somewhere around, you know, hovering between $25,000 and $27,000, uh, depending on what day or, or whatever, which is insane, <laughs> you know, and this is like after all of this drama and after all of this damage, um, you know, that that people are still willing to pay that much money um, for, for, uh, for Bitcoin. Um, that's not illegal. Uh, but that's, um, that's a bubble. You uh, mentioned that as Bloomberg columnist Matt Levine has argued going after some of the biggest players in the crypto industry gives us a window into how seriously the SEC takes this fight. You then quote Levine writing, these cases are high risk cases for the SEC. Coinbase and Bitcoin are big, well-funded companies with good lawyers and lobbyists. They have the resources and motivation to fight these cases to the end, and they do have decent legal arguments. If that is the case, why do you think the SEC would take on a high-risk case? Why do you think that they would take the risk or take the gamble that these charges may not hold up in court? Well, I think that they think, with some good reason, um that they that they may very well win that it's it's very possible um uh, that they do have a legal standing for sure um and that this is the time politically to do it because right now you know crypto doesn't have as many friends as it used to um so it's it's just a lot it's going to be a lot easier for a judge to rule against uh these crypto exchanges now uh, than it would have, you know, a little over a year ago, and when crypto is would was at its height, when they would have gotten so much flack, the SEC would have gotten so much flack, the judges would have gotten so much flack. Anyone going after crypto, when it was at its high, you know, um, would be, you know, attacked from all corners. You know, why would you bring down this like, you know, best innovation since sliced cheese or whatever? Um, whereas now they have some reason to believe that they could win these cases, even if it's not, you know, uh, a done deal that they would win They They have some, some good reason to believe that they could. And ultimately, you know, I think that this, this wild West existing outside of any kind of oversight, um, is, it's it's not great for our financial system um and it's not great for you know it's not a great look for the SEC to have let all of this happen um without any kind of regulations and accountability in place you know people lost a phenomenal amount of money uh a lot of regular people lost a lot of money um and so people are rightly asking you know where was where was the SEC? Where were regulators? How did they let this happen? So I think for them to to come in now uh, at a time when politically it's popular to do it, you know, I think from their perspective, this is the time. You write that the reality, as Bloomberg's Levine argues, is that the SEC, like all financial regulatory bodies, is also a political body, and it has long tended to go after financial threats and misdeeds after the fact, only once it is popular to do so, as you were just mentioning. 
So how important, then, is the court of public opinion on the SEC? Does it allow anything to go on as long as they're making money and people are happy, and if it starts losing money, they step in? Is that the kind of characteristics, the motivations that the SEC has, not trying to rein in something that might be a fraud, but rein in something that might be a fraud when it starts losing money? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's well said. Um, you know, and this isn't to say that there aren't good people in the SEC or any number of other regulatory bodies that are trying to do the right thing. Um, but but yeah, it's a it's a political body and it 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 functions that way. Um, and there's also a lot of you know, crossover. I mean, I, I think I wrote in this article, but um, the a lot of people in uh, FTX were, uh, you know, were previous employees of the, the, what's it called, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. And for that reason, you know, there was a lot of back and forth between, um, you know, people who were in that regulatory body at some point and then on the payroll of FTX at another point and a lot of back and forth and, and uh, personal connections there. Uh, and so not surprisingly, you know, the, the CFTC ended up being a bit of a cheerleader for crypto. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, like all political bodies, there's a lot of financial incentives and there's a lot of, um, you know, not above board, um, interactions between the people that they're supposed to be regulating. You write, after all, SBF extolled the virtues of effective altruism, in quotes. He just wanted to get filthy rich so that he could give this money away and make the world a better place. Now, I would be suspicious when people are telling me that the only reason they are making money is to make the world a better place, and especially when they're buying stuff like a 35 to $40 million penthouse in the Bahamas, which is a tax haven because there is no personal income tax, no capital gains tax, no inheritance or gift tax, nor any wealth taxes or taxes on, uh, or on shares of investments and interests. So what does it say to you about those who did see SBF as somehow being altruistic? Yeah, the effect of altruism thing really takes the whole thing over the top. You know, it's it's really just such a great way for rich people to feel good about themselves and to feel good about, you know, getting filthy rich. Um, and I absolutely share your skepticism anytime somebody tells you that they're only trying to get rich for the good of the world. You know, you should pause <laughs> and think twice about that. Um, you know, it's it, it's. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a great way to uh, to make yourself feel and to make other people feel like you know, oh wow, it's a good thing he's getting billions of dollars richer uh, because he wants to use it for good. Um, I mean, the whole effect of altruism movement is pretty sketchy altogether. Um, beyond you know, making rich people. Uh, feel good about you know being the good guys quote unquote 
Um, you know, there's all sorts of weird kind of culty like offshoots of effective altruism um, and all sorts of, you know, basically like discussion about the only thing that really matters is the greater good in a very abstract worldview of the future. And so if people, if, you know, if some people have to be trampled along the way in order to get to their sort of abstract vision of what the greater good will be in the future, then so be it. Um, you know, at the SBF trial yesterday, they had Carolyn Ellison um, on the witness stand, who was the CEO of Alameda and part of SBF's inner circle. And they asked her about, you know, about how it was that basically stealing all these customer funds, like how was that, you know, how did that work in terms, you know, how, how, how did that jive with, you know, this kind of moral code that SPF um, supposedly had, you know, and she said, right, that it, 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 it's, it, it absolutely fit because the only moral rule that matters, according to her, um, is doing whatever maximizes the utilitarian goal that maximizes the greatest good, um, however they define that. Um, and she said, you know, according to SBF, don't lie or don't steal, don't fit into that framework. You know, the, the, the framework is, you know, how do we maximize getting, you know, from point A to point B, no matter how it is that we get there. So uh, you also point out that the scam economy has shown surprising resilience. Despite continued volatility, speculators sniff money. In fact, making money off of volatility is part of the financial sector's bread and butter. As Bloomberg News recently noted, one reason for the increased trading volume of coins named in the SEC lawsuits could be that traders are attracted to the possibility of greater price volatility than in the broader market. Whether it's crypto or whatever it is, is there always what you call a scam economy going on within capitalism? Is there always a new vehicle for generating profits that is to some degree based on either misleading information, disinformation, or outright fraud? Is the scam economy an integral part of today's capitalism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking earlier about you know, the subprime mortgages and how much money that made, um, you know, before it went, before the, the bubble went bust, you know, part of why that was so appealing to investors is exactly it's, um, you know, the fact that it was a higher risk. So there's a whole system built in, you know, into like Wall Street, basically, where, the riskier something is, the greater the dividends are um, when you invest in it. And so when there's extra money sloshing around the system, then, you know, what better place to invest than, you know, some of the riskiest place in, places in the economy? Whether that's subprime mortgages or whether that's cryptocurrency, um, capitalists love, 
you know, a, a risky gamble. And that's really built into to the whole way that Wall Street and the financial system works. Um, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, not only is that kind of scam economy, not only is that kind of gambling baked into the system, but the most honest parts of our system, quote unquote, um, is also just the much more like traditional, you know, exploitation, <laughs> you know, like the system, the, the, the companies that make the, 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 the most straightforward money, um, without having to, you know, add on the, the scams and the hype and the whatever, uh, do it by, you know, paying workers one thing and profiting a wholly other thing. Um, and that's, that's the most kind of, uh, basic building blocks of capitalism when it's at its most honest. <laughs> so we're kind of, you know, between a, between a rock and a hard place. It's, we have the, the, the scam economy and the like most egregious gambling aspects of, uh, you know, the financial system and the, the wild west of, of cryptocurrency. Uh, and then we have the more honest capitalism, which, uh, you know, frankly, isn't, isn't a lot better. Uh, it's just a little bit more, more, uh, upfront. Uh, Ari Paul has an article at Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting uh, called Why Are Michael Lewis and 60 Minutes Hyping SBF? Lewis is the acclaimed author of The Big Short, 2008 Financial Collapse, about the 2008 financial collapse and Blindsided, the story of a football player, Michael Oher, that has proven not to be as Lewis reported. In fact, it looks like the family that had conservatorship over Oher may not have treated him as well as it is depicted in the Academy Award-winning film based on that movie. In the article, Ari writes, acclaimed business writer Michael Lewis has stepped into the role of SBF's chief defender. He interviewed Bankman Freed over more than a year for his upcoming book on him, and he took to CBS's 60 Minutes to tell the world that the accused was simply misunderstood. Lewis told 60 Minutes, quote, Cryptocurrency is not a Ponzi scheme. In this case, they had a great real business with FTX. If no one had ever cast aspersions on the business, if there hadn't been a run on customer deposits, they'd still be making tons of money. Would have FTX, in your opinion, survived? If it wasn't just for the bad press, and for that matter, would it have not succeeded if not for the good press it received? Is that all this is? The, uh, the uh, situation with FTX is just a matter of it getting good press at one time and bad press at the other? Is Michael Lewis right that this was a great idea that just suddenly had people casting aspersions upon it? Yeah, I mean, that Michael Lewis interview is one of the most absurd uh, and shocking things that I had seen around FTX for a while to at this moment, you know, be talking about it being a legitimate business is a really weird thing to do. Um, and uh, ironically or funnily enough, Michael Lewis came up during the FTX trial yesterday uh, when they were talking about, they were sort of interrogating 
uh, SBF's strategy of, you know, how he tried to present himself to the media and how deliberate it was, uh, that kind of image that he put forward of himself. Uh, and, and there was some text exchange that they showed about, you know, SBF talking to a couple of other people in his inner circle about Michael Lewis coming uh, to the Bahamas to profile him. Uh, it was clearly part of um, SBF's, you know, very deliberate strategy of selling a particular image of himself. Uh, he did that by allowing uh, Michael Lewis to shadow him. Of course, he let him into some parts of his life and not, you know, didn't show him um, you know, the, 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 the financial, uh, budgets and so on that they were hiding from their investors. Um, they gave Michael Lewis, uh, one part of the story. And apparently Michael Lewis, um, you know, fell hook, line and sinker for it, which, uh, you know, is, is kind of bizarre, but I, but I think to answer your question, uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, there was nothing legitimate about the way that they ran their uh, their business. And it's very clear at this point uh, to everybody, maybe apart from Michael Lewis, that FTX knowingly used billions of dollars of customer funds that customers did not, you know, willingly no, let alone allow for uh, to be used to invest uh, in these uh, speculative ventures. One last question for you, Hadas. Hadas Tier has been on to discuss her Jacobin uh, Magazine article, The Rot of the Cryptocurrency Goes Deeper Than Sand Bankman Freed. She is the author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics, and a regular contributor to Jacobin Magazine. This is her fourth appearance on the show. You can find all of our past interviews with Hadas at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on her name, and they are all absolutely free. As always, Sadas, our final question for you and for all of our guests is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think if there's any business journalists listening to the audience right now, this is the question from hell for them. You, uh, Ari Paul writes over at uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, he writes of the Michael Lewis interview on uh, 60 Minutes. Uh, that it's remarkable for an esteemed business journalist to use one of the country's most important news programs to declare that everyone except SBF was to blame for a business collapse that had enormous consequences for everyone involved. It's even weirder to hear a business writer insinuate that critical reporting and asking key questions about the health of a business constituted casting aspersions. So, Hadas, is the business press sensitive to journalists being critical of business? And if that is the case, is business journalism journalism? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think that in, in theory, there may be pockets of business journalism that um, shed light on you know, certain aspects of finance. 
it's pretty rare. Uh, and you know, I think that the, the business as usual model of business journalism is kind of get along to go along to get along or whatever that expression is. Um, and, you know, continue to pump up the system that they are invested in and, uh, you know, that's baked into their, to their system of like, you know, what it is that they, uh, the bread and butter of what they report on, of who pays their bills, um, of who they, you know, are connected with. A lot of what kind of stands for business journalism is really, uh, you know, not 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 the uh, the, the prime version of uh, journalistic uh, ethics and, and rigor that, that that we would want. Uh, but there, you know, there are certainly pockets of it, and uh, there are things to be learned um, from 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 reading some of it uh, for sure. But um, but yeah, that's uh, a, a good a good thing to keep in mind, uh, and and a, 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 you know when when you read uh, business journalism for sure. Hadas, thank you so much for being on this show, especially under the circumstances that you're in right now where you're still recovering uh, from your cold. I really, really appreciate it. You know I'm going to bother you in the future to have you back on the show. It's always great talking to you, and people should not only check out your writing over at Jacobin, your book, but also uh, there's, uh, but also uh, listening to the interviews that we've done with you in the past at thisishell.com when you search on Hadass's name. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. It's my pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Live from the United States. Actually, live from the 21st century, when everyone seems depressed, lonely, unhappy, or exhausted, this is hell if our conversation with Rastir on cryptocurrency made you realize that cryptocurrency is far from being dead, no matter how much we want it to be, like it did me. Boy, was I really hoping for cryptocurrency to be dead. Show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to analysis like that of Hadas that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to at thisishell.com right now. And doing so, with we do that all that without accepting any grants, or any money of any kind from any corporation. We're so not-for-profit, we can't afford to be a non-profit. Show your appreciation for all that and help us keep This Is Hell online and on air and assist in our efforts to make every show we've ever done available for free at our website by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes... Live on Patreon this week on Friday morning at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And somebody has to because you know that to corporate and public establishment media, this is hell and like a lot of non dare i say anti-fascist this is hell 
is becoming increasingly censored by social media algorithms that reward those on the far right for spreading hate, threatening violence, as well as ethnic cleansing and genocide, while those very same platforms are shutting down anyone or anything that promotes wacky ideas like peace and justice. So more than ever, we need your support as social media is doing everything they can to censor and silence us. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is how are Chinese commies sneaking into your community? <laughs> All right, let's check out Facebook. Two on the main Facebook page. Uh, John T. says they're coming in by parachuting from balloons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Throwback to... Uh, story of what was that last summer winter something like the weather balloon thing oh that's right yeah. <laughs> i was wondering what the connection was the spy there spy balloons yes the spy balloons of course they're doing that um riley j replies the little golden books that have all been replaced by little red books <laughs> oh i like that one i've got a little red book i have a, a Do you? leather like, version of it like an og one yeah whoa and i got it for a dollar I couldn't believe it. It was in the showcase of a coffee shop, and I was just like a display. And I was like, is this like an installation, or is this stuff for sale? And they are like, I don't know. What do you want? And I was like, the little red book. And the guy goes, okay, I'll give it to you for a dollar. That's it's, amazing. It's really great. Um, over in the hellhole on Facebook, Anthony S. replies, uh, oh, that's a tag for someone who's interested named Steve W. And then Steve has a good reply. And Steve has a great reply. Yeah. Yes. As a matter of fact, one of those Chinese commies tried to sneak onto our farm a while back. I caught him and gave him a good talking to. However, he turned out to be such good company that I now let him sleep under my bed. <laughs> that's so good. Uh, that's a great boogeyman reference. It sure is. Um, our very own Pete replies through the dry cleaning. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and, uh... Video link there for all of you who are curious. Um, Walter B replies Back when my class was standing in line outside Michigan Elementary School, my Michigan Elementary School, I don't think there is a Michigan Elementary no, School, I don't think so, yeah. um, staring at the sky during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I learned about the Chicom troops massed at the Canadian border. <laughs> I've stayed alert since then. Wow. <laughs> That's a rumor that people have forgotten about. No Chinese kidding. communists at the Canadian border ready to invade during the Cuban Missile right? Crisis. Wow. He, you thought Red Dawn started it all, but no, apparently. Back a few decades. <laughs> exactly. Nick E replies they are purists, they're doing it the same exact way. Is in an invasion of the body snatchers pods. <laughs> I've seen many of them fall from the sky and land on a local little league field right in center field. <laughs> okay, all right. Egon S replies, I heard those MAGA hats are red. <laughs> <laughs> another one from Nick E. On another note, battery manufacture and recycling may not be without problems. Oh, that's not an answer to the question. Yeah, no, that's making another FYI. stance about yeah. All right. Over on Twitter, we have, I believe, one response. We do. Um, from GIF, too slowly. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the Chinese are sneaking yes. into our communities. Too, too slowly. slowly. 
And then over on Discord, Crime Doctor 2019 replies, "The Bible's in our churches. Somehow they somehow changed the stories from get rich or die trying to let's feed as many people as we can with the little bit of food we have." <laughs> oh, man, have you heard these stories about kind of rural evangelical communities getting upset with their pastors? like reading the actual gospels because they're a little too socialist for them no kidding oh yeah it's a whole thing wow yeah that was what kept me interested when i was uh, catholic as a kid we had a uh, priest come from uh, south africa into our incredibly racist community and he all he did every week was talk about how uh Jesus would never support a system like apartheid and people just started leaving the church. Right. They're like, we don't want to hear that. We we're Christians. <laughs> yeah. Who want apartheid? <laughs> that makes sense. Because that's what Christ was all about. Totally. Keep them apart. Straight up Afrikaner. Do you know that about Christ? Yeah. <laughs> I hear he did some bad things during the Bush War. <laughs> yes, he did. Horrible. Um, let's see. Who else on Discord? Kim G. Always good. Replies, local TV programming of the Mickey Mouse Club show <laughs> for our ouch, kids. Ouch. <laughs> ouch. Always a good pun. And then Mark A. replies, all of the red mums are very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Any more? Is that it? That's, oh, we have one straggler on uh, Patreon. Oh, Bruce S. replies with a, a litany of answers. Inscrutably, smilingly, with aloha, exclaiming ni hao as girlfriends the old-fashioned way, with money. <laughs> so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, and we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. What's uh, Jeff talking about this week? Jeff is talking about... Get my tab open. There we go. Jeff pioneers a new literary form called word coleslaw. Good with a hot link sandwich and a beer. That sounds really great. And I know that he... There was discussion between him and I earlier this week online and he may be changing the topic because of recent events but we'll be finding that out in just a couple of minutes keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt you can subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams every Thursday usually, but this week on Friday, and this podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. This week on Patreon, it seems everyone knows something awful is happening to all of us, but we just can't put our finger on what's making us increasingly unhappy. The U.S., for instance, is seeing record high numbers of suicide. In the U.K., loneliness has gotten so bad they've created a ministry of loneliness in an attempt to address this seemingly global epidemic, or is it now a pandemic, of unhappiness. Whether you live in a small rural community or in a dense urban neighborhood, you are likely feeling something has gone horribly wrong. However, it doesn't seem to matter if you are in the country or the city. It's difficult to determine what is eating at us from the inside out, leaving us a mere shell bereft of the hopes and dreams we once embraced. 
So this week we're going back to small town America and venturing into the big city where we find something is definitely wrong and we're going to try to figure out what that something is. Also on Patreon, we are playing our February uh, 18th, 2006 interview with Palestinian democracy activist Dr. Mustafa Barghouti when we spoke with him live from the occupied territories. Uh, the year prior to our talk, so back in 2005, Mustafa was a candidate for the presidency of the Palestinian National Authority, uh, finishing second to Mahmoud Abbas. A uh, month before our conversation, Mustafa had been detained while campaigning in the Arab quarter of East Jerusalem and was taken for questioning to a local police station. He was subsequently voted into Palestine's parliament, heading the independent Palestine party, as he led the main component of that party, the Palestinian National Initiative. Independent Palestine had promised to fight corruption and nepotism, to demand the dismantling of the Israeli West Bank barrier, and to provide, quote, a truly democratic and independent third way for the large majority of silent and unrepresented Palestinian voters who favor neither the autocracy and corruption of the governing Fatah party nor the fundamentalism of Hamas. Unsurprisingly, the Benjamin Netanyahu government did not support them with funds as they would be seen as a threat because they were pro-democracy. Instead, the Netanyahu administration funded Hamas. So why are we playing that interview? Because this past Sunday on Twitter, I posted this. Did you hear about the new drinking game that's guaranteed to keep you sober? You do a shot every time you see a Palestinian interviewed by the U.S. press. Best part is, no hangover. What I did not know at that time was that morning, CNN's Fareed Zakaria had actually interviewed a Palestinian. That Palestinian was Dr. Mustafa Bergaudi. Fareed introduced Mustafa by making certain the audience knew he was not a member of Hamas, but a member of the Palestinian Authority, which he is not. And Mustafa corrected him, explaining that he and his party represent another often ignored democratic alternative outside of the Palestinian Authority, Palestinian Liberation Organization, and Hamas. Which means this week on Patreon, there's something horribly wrong going on, and we'll try to figure out exactly what that is. Plus, an alternative to terrorism and war crimes in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. But the only way you can hear all of that is by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash this is hell. You'll also get a special secret code word so you can get a discount on all of our stuff at this is hell.com when you click on support. And you can ask a question from hell to me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, as well as staying on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers. You gotta do that by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. You also get first crack at the following week's question from hell as well. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, we will be announcing this week's winner, and we'll be telling you what's happening on next week's show. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell, and Will, I know you have hefe, on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. The moment of truth. 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 The moment of truth.
Yes, word coleslaw is going to have to wait till next week. And wow, they just started up the machines behind my apartment. Uh, I, As the uh, token Jew on This Is Hell, I'll, I'm talking about uh, Israel now. And I saw that Mustafa Bardoudi interview, and I'm looking forward to hearing the one on Patreon. A know-nothing report on feelings about the current conflict. From Haaretz. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant announced on Monday that we are imposing a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. He said of Gaza's population of more than 2 million Palestinians, half of whom are children, and most of whom are refugees from areas beyond the Gaza boundary, breached by guerrillas on Saturday. What is meant by I stand with Israel? This is me talking now. Or the more important question, how does I stand with Israel condemn the atrocities inflicted by Hamas on non-combatants? Or even more important, how do people posting I stand with Israel imagine the statement condemns the Hamas perpetrated atrocities? Because proximate to the first day of the bloodbath, I saw exactly one guy post Hamas must be destroyed and he posted it in Latin. Maybe they think they're somehow being sensitive to people's feelings by not directly condemning Hamas, a kind of twisted wokeness to maintain plausible deniability against accusations of Islamophobia. I, the person speaking or writing, stand with, that is, take comradely moral stance beside with the object, in this case, the nation state of Israel, a sovereignty that had been promised to the Jews by England's Balfour Declaration in 1917. The state itself was founded by the UN and France and England for the Jews as an ethno-religious homeland in 1948. It was all part of the British house cleaning to get rid of the remaining colonies it could no longer afford after fighting a hugely expensive war against Nazi Germany and to do so leaving as many problems behind for the decolonized as possible just to be dicks. In the late 1980s, the Israeli government aided the growth of Hamas's popular support, mostly as an obstacle to the ability of the Palestinian Authority to run things in anything like a stable fashion. The strategy continues to work to this day, obviously. This might be the problem I have with I stand with Israel, as opposed to condemnation of Hamas's brutality. It's a rhetorical device designed to convey a warning not to speak of context in history. Allow us to wreak this terrible violence in retaliation for their terrible violence without considering our negative part in the story. And let's call it defense. Let us call it defense and let us do it because we're in agony that our people, our children, have been cruelly murdered and kidnapped. As if brutality visited on millions of Gazans for at least the past 16 years has absolutely nothing to do with the slaughter of hundreds of Jews in a maniacal bloodbath, whatever its supposed goal. No one can figure out what the goal actually was because it's impossible to see how Hamas's insane blood rampage is in any way going to improve Palestinians' chances for decent lives. But back to I Stand with Israel, which is not a condemnation of the crime, but a preemptive defense of the punishment, a demand that Israel's inevitably excessive response must be viewed by the world without examination. It requires no justification, which, who knows, it may not. But then the, the Hamas carnage might be self-justified too. But no, 
No one should examine the contextual nuances because context and nuance are only for anti-Semites who rudely violate Jews' special time of mourning that also includes a lot of bloodthirsty but justifiable bombing along with the Shiva cold platter. Just because the bombing of blocks of buildings containing children, women, and the geriatric are not displayed luridly on the front page of the New York Times doesn't mean they aren't happening and aren't important. You Philistines, sir, allow it to be simple, allow it to be black and white. Nothing justifies this butchery by our enemies, but you must allow us much more sophisticated technological butchery because otherwise there's no way for civilization to survive. If you even consider for a moment that one butchery differs only in character but can be equated with another in the cost of human life, how will we distinguish barbarians from respectable people? I mean, I get it. You want to say what they did was so heinous and barbaric that even while demanding your deference, we are, we are going to slaughter even more people whom we almost a little bit have been pretending up to now to see as humans. And it is indeed warranted for Jews to point out that some critics are trying to justify bloody evil carnage by listing Israel's crimes, even while those same critics are mouthing humanitarian mummery about concern for Palestinian lives. Exemplifying this accusation... Comics Sarah Silverman and Amy Schumer both reposted a terrible Instagram post by almost superhuman lawyer, Morning Joe Adornment, and businesswoman Mandana Dayani. The post began something like, I'm sick to my stomach at activists who see little girls being killed and dragged through the streets on a video, and their first impulse is to go online and explain all the historical reasons why it's okay those girls got killed. And it ended with, Your anti-Semitism isn't even unconscious. It's so deeply rooted, you can't even be bothered to consider how much pain your friends are in. I'm not sure how an ethos deeply rooted and not considered is somehow other than unconscious, but being in pain turns the best of us into bloviating idiots, even super successful citizens of note. And to be fair, there have been many about whom her words ring true. Don't be among that multitude. Yet oddly, it's kind of a compliment to Hamas, if you think about it, to assert that their Simchas Torah atrocities are sui generis and hermetically outside of, the, of history. It's akin to saying that Hamas is capable of letting 1,500 of their soldiers die to get a publicity segment on CNN. That's quite a sacrifice for the sake of image. And for sure, they're not above doing that, but are they really that much more clever than every other terrorist group in the world, those dummies who only kill to make people dead and others afraid? My thoughts turn again to the Latin rendering of Hamas must be destroyed. If those who confess or profess to care about Palestinian lives can be accused of perhaps unconscious or semi-comatose anti-Semitism, I think it's justifiable to wonder if those who lead with I stand with Israel and not destroy Hamas, aren't suffering from a little unconscious wokeness, which is it's a fine impulse, really. I mean, eventually, destroy Hamas came to the lips of even the most tremulous and trepidatious. I'm sure fear of anti-Semitic comments, or even comments that could merely be read as anti-Semitic, were part of their calculus. I felt a like impulse when confessing I was worried about my friends, both those who had loved ones in Tel Aviv and elsewhere in Israel and those who had loved ones in Gaza. I got paid back 
with verbal ultra-reactionary Jewish terrorism. There's no doubt about that, which, you know, is the kind of terrorism a person can live with, unlike bombs, rape, and gunfire. Yes, blame Hamas. Jesus, they manipulate and steal from and lie to and hurt their own people. But don't try to silence honorable speech by labeling it anti-Semitic. That's a no-win tactic. But maybe this is all no win. Maybe I should just recognize the bald-faced agendas and tell people to F off. But I won't. Because despite how this all pains me, I have no doubt that everyone online in these horrible days is dealing with a great deal of sorrow and agony and frustration. As much as I despise humanity right now, I emphatically denounce the infliction of agony on anyone. Believe it or don't, as you wish. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Yeah, I was kind of surprised on uh, local Channel 9 WGN News here in Chicago. Yesterday, they started their evening news with an interview with a Chicago Police Department officer who, that's not the surprising part, okay, who is, uh, that's a, that generally happens. That's uh, typical. But uh, he uh, is Palestinian and he has lost 10, 10 members of his family already. And so, well, you know, it, yeah. at least they had a Palestinian on local news, which they hadn't had on local news for the first five days of the current conflict. So at least there seems to be some increasing awareness that the coverage has been really horrible. Well, the coverage differs in different places. I got sure. a, I got a message from uh, a friend in Austria, in Vienna, who said that uh, that um, social media companies uh, and the government, I guess, had been taking down posts that talked about massacres in Israel uh, against Israelis by Hamas, and and you know, there, that there was a lot of control of speech because I mean I don't know if you know Austria. <laughs> was very anti-Semitic. Yes, incredibly. <laughs> um, so I guess they don't, and they, they don't like uh, uh, making Jews seem like victims anymore. I mean, they never really, they didn't do much. <laughs> they didn't do what Germany did. They didn't go, hey, our bad. We're going to try to be nice. They stayed. They st they stayed that way, apparently. Uh, but anyway, yeah. And so Can yeah, I'm uh, Canadian Facebook. I just learned uh, is very. Uh, there's a lot of censoring on it. So if you post, for instance, uh, an article about um, you know something that's going on in Pakistan, like with uh, Imran Khan being jailed, they just won't show the story. They'll allow you whatever words that you've posted as a comment, but the link to lots of stories in Canada on Canada's Facebook get blocked because uh, we just learned that from a listener in Canada who said, yeah, you know, your posts do not come through on Canada Facebook. So there you go. We're, we're somehow Chuck, upsetting Canadians. Chuck, I, I actually, I, I'm going to have to talk to you off the air about uh, an inter interaction I had with uh, Cantor Randy Herman's wife. Oh, geez. <laughs> but it... Uh, it's an ongoing thing, kind of, but it's it, it, it. You absolutely have to call me at some point in the next few days about so we can talk. Because, right. oh. I love. Let me just say this: I love Randy. 
Whatever he has said to me is, I understand that he's, he, he and his family are in pain, and he is very aware that he is, speaks from pain right now. And it, it, he's, he's a great guy. And I'm going to see him in But, a few you, days. you know, uh, speak just as on that topic real quick. Um, mm-hmm. That's like a really, really dangerous time. And that's very... Uh, that's really no in, that's really that's no that's really in tune of him you know to realize that he at, is speaking from pain because people don't realize that they are I mean you can just look at the reaction to nine eleven you know oh yeah no so kidding it's the exact same thing you know the uh, you got you gotta keep in mind the space that you're talking from but that's really really difficult to do because that's a self examination that's really hard you know. No, he. I gotta say, my, you know, as painful as it's been for me to hear things, it's I, I myself, I like to pat myself on the back for understanding that he is coming from pain, and and letting him tell me everything. His wife, on the other hand, I'm not so sure. We'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll call you this weekend. Uh, Laura's out of town, so I'll probably call you within the next 24 to 48 hours, sir. Cool, baby. All right, I love you guys. Who's on? Who's on? Who's is that? Will? Yeah, that's me. Hi, Will. Beautiful, beautiful piece, job. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, you guys. Oh, one last thing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if Lumpen is still cutting off the moment of truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. f you guys, man. You need this. <laughs> you need this information. No one's going to give you that perspective. All right, Jeffy. <laughs> Love you, man. Stay beautiful. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Bye. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell, and that is Jeff breathing heavily into his microphone. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag, merchandise, whatever you want to call it, stuff you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and are there any more answers? We have no more answers to the question from hell, which is, how are the Chinese commies sneaking into your community? (laughs) The answers I liked most were, and Will, please tell me which one of these you liked the most. Uh, So on Patreon, uh, I, you know, we can't give it to Jeff but I did like his response <laughs> in John Wick's sequels and yeah. spinoffs. That's how the Chinese commies are sneaking into his community. Yairo M saying they're slipping in through the freaking cracks, man. Game over, man. Game over. What movie is that from? It's driving me nuts. Aliens. It is was, it? Uh, yeah, either Pri- yeah, Private Hudson played by... Um, shoot. Ernie Hudson? By no. Um, He's in many movies. Yeah. All right, you'll anyway. check it out. Yeah. Uh, uh, also, I liked Public Universal Comrade saying <laughs> that the Chinese commies are sneaking into their community with my assistance. <laughs> On Discord, Crime Doctor 2019 saying the Bible's in our churches. They somehow changed the stories from Get Rich or Die trying to let's feed as many people as we can with a little bit of food we have. Kim G saying local TV programming of the Mickey Mouse. <laughs> club show for kids. Mark A saying all of the red mums are very suspicious. I like that. (laughs) Over on Facebook uh, Riley J saying the little golden books have all been replaced by little red books. John T saying parachuting from balloons. 
Welcome to the over on Welcome to the Hell Hole. Uh, we have Steve W. saying, as a matter of fact, one of those Chinese commies tried to sneak in onto our farm a while back. I caught him, gave him a good talking to. However, he turned out to be such good company that I now let him sleep under my bed. <laughs> Egon S. saying, I heard those MAGA hats are red. By the way, Egon should be coming back here to Chicago in the near future. Awesome. Former producer on the show. Uh, Nick E. saying, they are purists. They're doing it the same exact way as in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Pods. Walter B. saying, because when my class was standing in line outside my Michigan elementary school, staring at the sky during the Cuban Missile missile Crisis, I learned about the Chinese Communist troops massed on the Canadian border. I've stayed alert since then. And over on Twitter, M50 saying, the Chinese Communists are sneaking into his community too slowly. Any one of those really stick out to you? <laughs> that was a very strong field. I can't get Steve W's I know. head, though. That's mine, too. Steve W, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. We will be responding to your answer at Welcome to the Hellhole to get your contact information, so not only can you choose what piece of This is Hell merchandise you want as a prize for winning this week's question from hell, or having the best answer to this week's question from hell, uh, but uh, also getting us you know, contact information so we can send it to you ASAP. So congratulations, Steve W. Just tell us, again, what swag you want when you can cl- when you click on support at thisishell.com. We'll get it in the mail to you post-haste. The My answer to this week's question from hell, how are Chinese commies sneaking into your community? I have no idea. And every answer I came up with sounded oddly sinophobic. So... Thanks to everyone who sent Sounds in an like answer. you've got a little self-examination in the future, Chuck. <laughs> Exactly. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Will, uh, who are our guests on next week's show? Our upcoming guests include Tom Dispatch contributor Karen J. Greenberg, who returns to This Is Hell. This time, discussing her latest article, Closing Guantanamo? Yes, at a snail's pace. But a pace. That's a great title. It's a pace. It is a pace. (laughs) Um, Karen is the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law. Her most recent book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. I think this is her fifth or sixth appearance on the show. Oh, wow. She was on the show a lot right after, right when Guantanamo opened up. Uh, so, yeah, so she's going to be back on the show. Uh, and also, we're going to have, uh, you know, uh, next week, uh, Seb, Whoop, Seb Booker uh, returns with the past inside the present. Uh, we'll have This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin, as always, will deliver a moment of truth. Huge thank you to this week's producer, Will Ippen. Also, thanks to Sebastian Ronaldo, Jeff, and to Dan Kugler, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Hummiston, Dan Hill, and Pete Balavanis just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Friday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, and we'll try to figure out what is that something wrong that is going on with all of us. Plus, a 2006 interview with a Palestinian leader leader who uh, offers an alternative to their seemingly never-ending conflict with Israel. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. 
My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>